Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen and joining me today is... Devinder Hardwar. It's just the two of us, Devinder, just you and me. Um, the two dudes. As the song goes, as the song goes, I, I don't know the rest of the lyrics, but uh, just imagine that playing throughout this episode. Yeah, just the two of us. Now, uh, why, you might ask why are there only two people on this episode of the podcast? And uh, that is because on today's episode of the Slash Filmcast, we are going to be reviewing Ari Aster's new movie, Midsummer with Valerie Complex. Really grateful to her for joining us uh, on today's review portion of the episode. Uh, and when Jeff Kanata found out that uh, we were going to be reviewing Midsummer, he said, hey, uh, can I please not watch this movie? Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a pretty reasonable reaction. Yeah. Because... We, we actually just heard footsteps running away and just car <laughs> driving away while we were all recording. That's what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I do not begrudge anyone for not wanting to see Midsummer because it is, uh, I, I think even people who like the movie would agree that it is a grueling experience. You know, it is two and a half hours long and filled with some of the most brutal imagery I've seen. Uh, in quite some time in a horror film. So fun date movie, fun date movie. Yeah, yeah. Didn't someone tweet at us, Devendra, saying that they saw it as a like a date, or they they brought their mom? They to brought see their it mom. Something? Someone brought yeah, their mom to is, see it. Yeah. To be honest, I'd probably watch this movie with my parents. Like it, they, it'd be the sort of thing they'd be into as well. Um, I have taken it upon myself to warn people, like uh, people at my office and coworkers, you don't really pay attention to what movies are. Uh, that this is not a date movie. Like, I think that's a fair warning for anybody, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Not the best thing to see if you're in a young or you know, new relationship or if you're in a relationship that... Uh, and, and definitely a not a thing to see if you're in a struggling relationship. <laughs> this is this is not the shot in the arm that your relationship needs to survive. Um, yeah. Do, do, not, do not see Midsummer with someone who you even slightly question how good the relationship is going. There, there are a lot of tweets out there about people like the after movie conversations yes. with couples yes. and like it is it's uh it's harsh it's yeah. bad it's harsh anyway uh so we're gonna do some some emails some what we've been watching and then uh conclude with an in-depth review of midsummer with valerie complex you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com you can also email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com uh, i want to read a couple of emails I, i've been loving these emails be- people have been writing in you know in the past i've not read the emails because they've been spoilery for the movie but you know what uh over time i've just stopped caring as much so here's what i'm going to say spoilers for spider-man far from home if you don't want to be spoiled uh you should skip ahead uh we'll put a timestamp where the what we've been watching where that begins so you can just skip ahead to there uh but uh yeah we got some some interesting emails uh this one comes in from tyler so again, spoilers for Spider-Man Far From Home. This email comes from Tyler, uh, writing into slash filmcast at gmail.com. Um, quote, I have a problem with Spider-Man Far From Home that ultimately soured this experience without completely ruining it. Uh, overall, I had a lot of fun, but there was a piece of Mysterio's justification that truly bothered me and made me take a look at my expectations of villains in his movies. Mysterio and his band of disgruntled ex-employees hatched this plot essentially to fool the world, become the next Avenger, and or destroy Tony's legacy, whatever. I don't have so much of a problem with this, but the fact that these ordinary, well-qualified people in science who happen to be fired from their previous jobs are just okay murdering kids with drones does not compute with me. 
the jump they make from being non-lethal, non-lethal mischief masters to being cool with gunning down kids <laughs> seemed way too far of a gap for my mind to cross. I also think it triggered me since I'm an HR professional. Uh, are we supposed to expect that it's so easy to believe that uh, disgruntled ex-employees are just down to do this? Uh, I also thought the people on his team looked nice and for the most part harmless, which didn't help me buying in, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, the, the you know, Mysterio's uh, motivations are uh, lightly explored in Spider-Man Far From Home. And I think, like, the... He's uh, angry. Moti- he's, the he's motivations a very angry of, man. The motivations of his henchmen are even less well explored. Um, and Listen, those stock options are worthless now. What are they going to do, you know? Yeah, I mean, this this does get to a common issue in any kind of blockbuster action movie, which is the henchmen or hench people, I guess would be the, the correct uh, gender neutral term. Like what, what is their motivation? You know, you see people who are, are risking lives to, uh, to save the people they work for. And it's like, really has, has villain X really inspired that much uh, loyalty? (laughs) In fact, even one of the Marvel films comments on this, I think there's a moment in Iron Man three where like Tony's about to blast some dude and the guy like, you know, holds his hands up and he like cries uncle basically. He's like, dude, I just started, you know, working here uh, and runs away. You know, like I feel like it's just a common problem that like, hopefully the movie glosses over it well enough that you don't think about it. But in general, yeah, these hench people, you know, uh, they, uh, in, in most movies, they're willing to kill people, sacrifice their lives, sacrifice other people's lives, all to back up uh, what is usually not a very savory person in the form of their boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Listen, sorry, it's all a metaphor for you know making a movie with a really demanding director. Like mm-hmm. that's what it all is. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, we also had David Spencer in L.A. write in to slash filmcastgmail.com about Mysterio's motivation. You know, commenting on this very uh, fact, uh, he says here. Uh, Motivations, Warmonger, Whiplash, Ross, whatever Guy Pierce's name was, Yellow Jacket, Goliath, I don't really remember Ant-Man and the Wasp, and now Mysterio. All of them have the exact same motivations. My rich boss stole my idea or cut me out without giving me proper credit, now I'm mad about it. When people complain about Marvel movies being samey, this is one of the major elements I think that causes it. This and Skybeams. I'm a major MCU fan, my wedding was literally Marvel-themed. And I've especially loved the latest wave of films because they felt like they're finally breaking out of the criticisms people had in phases one and two. And yet, here we have another guy who's mad at Tony Stark for being a dick. He doesn't feel like a foil to our hero, representing conflicting ideas and forcing the protagonist into tough decisions like Killmonger, Thanos, or Ego. He just wants to kill this kid because he got drones from Tony. The toast scene felt so hokey to me because it felt like they wanted to retcon scenes that had no intention of setting up a character like Mysterio. I don't know if Doctor Strange 2 will ever come out, but if it does, and if Mordo is the villain, it will be an arc that has actually developed. This is not character development. This is a set of motivations that have been used too many times. End quote. Uh, and actually, Dan Vostin, our guest last week, actually defended mm-hmm. this. He, he, wrote, he wrote an email to us. He said, quote, What I enjoyed so much about uh, Mysterio was not that he's an aggrieved employee of Stark's, 
out for revenge, but how he intends to utilize Stark's legacy on the world for his revenge and eventual gain. It isn't just meta that he's dressing as both R and the denizens of the MCU's idea of what a hero looks like and performing performing as such. It is narratively satisfying as well. It frames Peter's conflicts over who should wield power in a new way, suggesting that the impression of heroism isn't really enough and that Tony knew that at Peter's core was a good person actually worthy of it. It deals with the power vacuum after the results of Endgame in an interesting way, essentially weaponizing it, including on a personal level for Peter, who at one point has to deal with the holographic zombie memory of his mentor, end quote. So uh, I thought that was a great and interesting defense of the Mysterio motivation. P- uh, 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 Devendra, did you uh, have any concerns with Mysterio's motivations? Or do you feel like these villains are getting too samey at this point? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's more how he went about, you know, being disgruntled about Tony Stark. <laughs> um, I, it, it is a movie that kind of takes the whole idea of superheroes and sort of meme culture and a lot of things too. like he just he just wants to be famous on the level of like his famous his favorite YouTube star. Eric, in their world, the YouTube stars are superheroes. Like, I found that all really intriguing. I think any of these movies, if you really dig down to the motivations of the villains and their, you know, their uh, henchmen, it probably doesn't work out so well. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all of uh, the emails to slashfilmcast at gmail.com and um, uh, appreciate the engagement as always. Devendra, why don't we get into some what we've been watching this week? Sure. I had a chance to check out this movie called I Love You Now Die. Have you heard of this movie? Uh, you mean the series? No, this is well it's a, it's, a, it's a it's an HBO documentary series. I, I guess it's a series. It's yeah. two films. Yeah. yeah. Um directed by Aaron Lee Carr. Aaron Lee Carr is an extremely accomplished uh documentary film director. Um, she's made films like At the Heart of Gold inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal. Um, she's also made uh, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, which is uh, tells the same story that uh, the act on Hulu, fictional, uh, not fictionalized, this is like kind of yeah. does a dramatic reenactment of. Uh, and uh, she's also a, a, an author as well. Um, but uh, she's the daughter of David Carr, the uh, late New York Times media columnist. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of her work and she recently just debuted this documentary called I Love You Now Die, which is, uh, about the case of Michelle Carter. You know about this case, uh, about Michelle Carter yeah. and Conrad? Yeah, Roy? I remember it was a big deal. It was yeah. a big deal in terms of like, yeah, media. What, what is the internet doing to kids today? Uh, I also saw part of this. I thought most of the first episode too. Yeah. So, uh, sh- short version of the story is that uh, Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy were in, were like boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, they were in a relationship, a romantic relationship that was largely, that largely took place online uh, via thousands of texts. And Conrad Roy was very depressed and wanted to kill himself. And Michelle Carter, uh, you know, as the media told the story, egged him on, right? Like, uh, and we should say that, like, I'm going to briefly discuss. Uh, suicide here so like if uh, this is a trigger for you feel free to skip ahead Um, but yeah at one point in his actual existence Conrad Roy like got into a car and started filling it with carbon monoxide and uh, then like couldn't deal with it and like got out of the car and then uh, you know texted Michelle and was like I can't I can't do it and Michelle was like get back in that car you know and then he did get back in the car and he ended up dying and the question is, how culpable was Michelle Carter? You know, like how much to blame 
was she for this person's suicide? And uh, to read the uh, press reports, I mean, even just the story I just relayed. Yeah, uh, doesn't sound very good. Sounds like a horrible person. Sounds like a pretty terrible human being uh, who does not deserve our sympathy uh, at all. And as usual, uh, the real life situation is much more complex. And I think the movie I Love You Now Die does a pretty good job of unraveling uh, this extremely complicated story and presenting an even-handed telling of both sides that uh, I think is going to be very valuable, particularly for something like this where it is so easy for the media to sensationalize something like this. It's so easy to just annihilate any nuance in this story. And uh, I think that a, a, a movie or a documentary like I Love You Now Die does a great job of adding more nuance, of adding complexity to a situation that I think sorely needs it. So I would strongly recommend this uh, documentary, which is available right now on HBO. Uh, if you want to learn more about this case, if you want to explore it more, uh, that's I Love You Now Die. It's directed by Aaron Lee Carr. Uh, that's what I've been watching this week. Devendra, what about you? What have you been watching? Um, David Chen, you have seen Face Off many times, right? I think I have seen Face Off is not an accurate yeah, way you live of describing. You, you live and breathe Face Off. I, I think I am not exaggerating. I think I've seen Face Off more than any other film in my entire life. Oh, Wow. Wow. I think I've seen Face Off like probably fifteen times is my guess. Uh, like, okay, and 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 you have to understand like this is like when I was coming of age as a movie lover. Yeah, 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 uh, same. And like, same. you know, huge fan of John Woo. And like, this was John Woo's first like really very very successful American film. I mean, he well, made yeah he made several. Uh, but he they made Broken Arrow great. and Hard Target, but like this was yeah. like the first breakout. Uh, success, I feel, that like really felt to me like the perfect synthesis of John Woo's style and American uh-huh. action film, uh, uh, American action filmmaking, I thought. Okay, all, um, the, all those things are true. I echo your feelings, Dave. Yep. But have you ever seen Face Off staged live, performed in Roman times, written in iambic pentameter? Uh, no, I have not. And let me just say, it really yeah. does kill me that many of you had a chance to see this and I did not. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. This crazy thing happened uh, at Prospect Park in Brooklyn this weekend called Cage in the Park, which is a live performance of Face Off uh, with everything I described by two. We should say that it's show. typically like mm-hmm. Shakespeare in the Park, right? So, so well, typically... I mean, it's a riff on Shakespeare in the Park. Right. Yes. Like, right. uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, I think their riff is like, this is going to be the, what, the 61st annual Cage in the Park. They just want to be one more than Shakespeare in the Park or something. Um, but it's by two Daily Show employees, a producer and a writer. And it's basically that whole concept, a live performance of Face Off. I think I've never seen Point Break live, but I, I think it, it may be similar to that, except this feels more like a live stage show. And uh, it, it's pretty insane. Um, it, it recounts all the best moments of the film, like everything you'd remember. I tweeted uh, the entire opening, you know, the the opening minute, uh, the opening seconds of Face Off where you see uh, John Travolta hanging out is it a merry-go-round in a merry-go-round with his child with his son and sniper nicholas cage in the background shoots shoots john travolta shoots his son kills his son opening a face-off that's all depicted here um this it's great it's hilarious um i, I think it distills everything that is so good about face-off uh the two actors i don't have their names in front of me um 
But you know, I, I think the actors do a great job of channeling the wilder parts of Travolta and Cage's performances, especially the actor who did uh, who did Nicolas Cage. I mean, how can you not? How can you not like really just revel? in being Nicolas Cage in one of the greatest Nicolas Cage movies ever. Um, it's a really funny thing. Like it was, it was also, it's just so wild. Like, honestly, this thing happened uh, five minutes from my house in this like columned building we have in Prospect Park that is normally just empty. Like it's normally just a place where people have like birthday parties and stuff. It's, it's kind of a crumbling old Coliseum type looking thing with the, uh, with big columns. And uh, they staged it there. It was just filled with movie nerds. Uh, I met some folks. I met a listener. Uh, I met uh, Hoi Chen Bui for the first time, a slash film writer, because uh, she lives in New York. I just have not run into her at all. And this is the sort of these are the cool things like these are the things that make me really enjoy living in New York. Uh, this thing was co-produced by the Alamo Draft House here. So it was just like a great community thing of people gathering together on a hot summer day to revel in their love of face-off and i really enjoyed it um they may be turning this thing into some sort of a production eventually i feel like this is a test run um it's certainly they have to tighten up the performance a bit i think uh they let some great lines kind of just go by too much like uh there's a uh, they're talking about um uh cage's character is talking about he can he can eat grapes for hours and i feel like you could really you could really just like revel in that line a little more. Uh, there's the what a predicament uh, <laughs> towards the end. And, you know, it just kind of passes by. I want those moments to be glorified and championed. You yeah. Know, how how dare be. these actors not uh, give these lines the glory that they deserve? Well, it's also uh, more the play. The, the play has to give room around those lines you right, know, to like right. really, really let them land. So it's things like that. Um, I think at points it, it kind of devolves into people like shouting and just swearing at each other. But I think the performance is really funny. Uh, there was a, an introduction and like uh, a commentary by somebody playing John Wu uh, in a leather jacket and a halter top. So like that's it was, it was fun. It was hilarious. Like it is a pure distillation of my love of John Wu and face off and all that. I wish you were here for it, this, Dave. Yeah. I mean, it combines two of my favorite things in the world, face off and Shakespeare. Uh, and it clearly yeah. was made by like I got to experience it through Instagram stories that some of you had shared, and I'm like, man, I really wish I was there for that. Uh, I hope it becomes a full production. Is it still running now, or is it one time event? I mean, it was it was just two. They just ran two things at this yeah. free space. You know, like the, the, there's very little money involved in this whole thing. I think the Alamo Draft House like covered like most of the costumes or something. It was just like a great ragtag thing though, which is what I kind of love about it. Um, yeah. And people who were just like walking by in the park would wander in and like wonder what the hell is going on. There was a mariachi band concert like right next to it. So they had to like compete with that and sort of incorporate it into the show, too, which was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> live theater, man. Live theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, man, you know, speaking of movies that like I don't feel are super culturally relevant these days, I feel like face off, you know, that's a movie that I've I basically memorized the entire movie uh -huh. and uh. I, I guess the thing is the movie is really goofy. You know what I mean? Like it's super goofy. When it's I saw goofy, it, but... when I saw it as a kid, it's like that. Like the way that the face switching is depicted in the movie, I'm like, oh, that could. Uh, that seems like the thing that could actually this happen. Is fine. That seems it's like fine. it's possible. Uh, but then you grow up and you realize, like, no, that's ridiculous. Like none of that's possible. <laughs> um, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, uh, listen, the Mission Impossible series wouldn't have like the prevalent face-offing as they would without face-off, right? 
Uh, or was was MI one before the movie? I forget now. I think. But I think you, like yeah, you're thinking of Mission Impossible two probably, right? Well, two and also all the other movies like face face offing is a big thing, and surely Wu like made it a big element into just because I, I think he loves the concept or something. I, um, I don't know. But, you I don't know. That, I don't this know. This movie is so culturally relevant. Yeah, I mean, I I I will always have a soft spot in my. My mm-hmm. heart for that movie, although it is like it's a pretty silly movie. It's a pretty silly movie, yeah. like looking back on it. But I did Get love it. Embrace the silliness. I, I I think the one thing that I really felt like sold me on this production in the park was when I saw this Instagram story of somebody singing somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, uh, I tweeted that. I tweeted that yeah, whole yeah. section. So this the shootout that happens like towards the end of the movie with somewhere over the rainbow playing. It is a, is a giant sword fight, and it, it works. It's, it's just great. like what, like this person, the, whoever conceived of this, clearly loves the the DNA of Face Off, you know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's Cage that in the Park, um, and I will forever regret not having been able to attend. Yeah, it's written up on Slash Film. You can check out the details and stuff there. Hopefully, they'll be able to produce this somewhere. Like, I'm sure this this would be huge in L.A. Like, this could be the next Point Breaker Live, I guess. It feels like it's like watching. You know, remember that movie. Um, be kind rewind this like the yeah, michelle Gunn, yeah. like sweeting movies it feels mm-hmm. like some version of that almost it is yeah, it, yeah. it's a remixed version of this movie in, in all the right and wrong ways Devinder, what else have you been watching i also caught the uh the first episode of from the earth to the moon and do you remember the series dave yeah it came out like a couple decades 20 ago 20 like, years ago 98 tw- 20 years ago yeah. So HBO went ahead and remastered the whole thing. It used to be streaming on HBO Go and now, but it was like, uh, I, I believe it was just standard def. They remastered it into high def. It looks amazing. And uh, I believe, yeah, all of this is like leading up to the Apollo 11 like anniversary, right? So, so, so it is a documentary about... Uh, it, it is... Is it a documentary? It, it is. There's documentary footage. But it's also like a dramatized series. It's very weird. And it has like um, it has like introductions by Tom Hanks, like late 90s Tom Hanks, who looks just like very young. Uh, I, I think this was a project uh, Tom Hanks and Ron Howard and, uh, you know, the Brian Grazer and everybody like that whole crew wanted to do it after Apollo 13 to kind of tell the whole story of the, uh, you know, of the space missions, uh, you know, of the moon landing and everything kind of surrounding it. And this is a series like it goes across like dramatized sections, uh, newsreel footage, some documentary stuff. Um, it's a really weird mix of things. Tom Hanks directed the first episode, too, which is kind of uh, kind of a strange thing to see. Uh, but there's so like there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, first of all, like the actors you see, uh, like Stephen Root pops up. Uh, I forget, uh, Brian Cranston is in this thing. Carrie Elwes is in this thing. Like, people playing, like, uh, notable astronauts and, you know, people working at NASA. Uh, I think it gets the drama really well done. And honestly, it is the perfect thing to watch if you want to, like, believe in an America that can kind of do things again and not a country where uh, whatever our president is tweeting is is tweeting. Like, it, it is a nice... Uh, mental refresh is sort of like rewatching the West Wing or something like it. It reminds me of what our country could be. So it's kind of fun. Uh, the remaster is good and I think it's worth a watch. Um, I saw some of this like back in high school, I think like we were watching in science class or something. So I've never seen this whole series. So now seems like the perfect time. And it's certainly a good uh, accompaniment to like first man or something like that. Well, another accompaniment is uh, the documentary Apollo 11. Yes, um, yeah. which uh, I, I think is has recently aired on CNN. 
if I'm oh, not wow. mistaken, or TV. So it's like it's available to get on television um, if you have like DVR or something like that. And there uh, are like the DVD and it's on on demand. Uh, there were some screenings again, like somebody yeah, yeah, to celebrate. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is a great film. Um, it, it essentially tells the story of Apollo 11 using only recently unearthed documentary footage. So like, there's no talking head interviews. There's no uh, actor reenactments. It's just the footage from the uh, uh, event, which is really impressive what how they are able to like string together all this footage to create a yeah. coherent and thrilling narrative. So and mostly like glorious 70 millimeter footage too. Like it looks insane. I, I mean, there is footage that was shot back then that looked beautiful on an IMAX format screen, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that's, that's how impressive it was. So uh, highly recommended. And yeah, from the earth to the moon, uh, as well is available. Uh, is it streaming on HBO? I'm not sure. It is streaming as of today. It okay, just restarted today. streaming today with the remastered version. And I'm going to be writing up like something like the best things to watch to to celebrate Apollo um, for Engadget. So this, all of this is going to be on there for sure. Cool. Well, that's From the Earth to the Moon and Apollo 11. Two things worth checking out. That's what we've been watching this week. Allow me to break in right here, fellas. You didn't think you could go through a whole episode Without the old Jeff Meister. That's what I'm calling myself now, the old Jeff Meister. Hey, I wear glasses. And I got to tell you, all of the glasses that I currently own, four pairs, sunglasses and regular glasses, are Warby Parker, our sponsor. I own four pairs of Warby Parker. I love my Warby Parkers. They're affordable. They look great. And they're so easy to buy. I don't have to worry about going into a place and spending my whole day going out of... I just don't like leaving my house is really the whole thing. But the best thing about Warby Parker is I still get to try on a bunch of different glasses. See, what you do is you go on their website and you select five pairs of glasses. You try them on at home for five days. You get five days to check them out. That's their free home try-on program. You can do it for five days. I've done this multiple times. I've done it uh, for every pair of glasses that I've gotten from Warby Parker, and I love it because I really have no good taste, and so I have to rely on my wife to decide what looks good on my face, and it goes right to my house, and I have five days to try on the different glasses and go, oh, this one, this one, I don't know about this one. Actually, I can make my decision pretty quick. It doesn't even take me the full five days, but it's nice to have five days. I've done this so many times. It's so great, and they have so many styles at Warby Parker. I love them. There's also no obligation to buy when you do the free home try-on. You can just check it out and see if you like it. It ships free, free to you, free back to them, and it includes a prepaid return shipping label, which is so simple. You don't have to worry about it. You just slap it right back on the same box you got it in, and you're good to go. If you head over to warbyparker.com slash filmcast, you can order your free try-ons Today, the glasses start at just 95 bucks. That's incredibly cheap. That's why I have four pairs of them because it's it's more convenient for me to just have an extra pair of glasses around the house when I'm looking for mine than it is, you know, because it's so inexpensive. It's it's just better to just have more glasses. That's that's why I go to Warby Parker. I I honestly do this. Also, if you have an iPhone X, you can use their new app and use their virtual try-on. So you can actually see how glasses look on you virtually. It's uh, got a realistic color, texture, and size of each style just using your phone. That's pretty crazy. 
The 95 bucks, by the way, that includes your prescription lenses. That's not just the frame. That includes your prescription. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Also, blue light filtering lenses are also available now. It's pretty great. I love these glasses. Like I said, I own four pairs of them. Uh, the coolest thing, too, is that for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. So you feel good about using them. Again, warbyparker.com slash filmcast. That's W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R dot com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Try the try-on. There's, no, there's really no risk. Give it a shot. Before we get to our review of uh, our uh, Midsummer, Ari Aster's new movie with Valerie Complex, we want to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to donor Jamie from Decatur, uh, Georgia, who writes in, uh, just wanted to have Decatur properly represented and pronounced. Thanks, Dave Chen. Shout out to fellow Atlantan Devendra. Keep up the good work, guys. P.S. Shout out to Jeff Kanata for We Have Concerns. I still listen to old episodes all the time. Uh, and John from Decatur, let's go to Twain's and talk about movies. Uh, so that comes from Jamie. I think Jamie is is say like trying to pass a message on to John from Decatur, who donated recently as well. So, oh, friends, John, make you friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fr- friends making friends uh, via the donation section of the Slash Filmcast. Well, good. I'm not in Atlantan, but uh, my family's there, so I'm always over there. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, we also got this donation from Mike Apparicio from Oak Park, Illinois, uh, who writes in to say, "Hey guys, letting you just letting you know that season two of Dark is out on Netflix." Uh, and I'm going to pause here for a second and say that Mike Apparicio actually donated uh, when season one came out. Yeah, and he yeah. said, "Hey, I'm donating this um, so that you will watch Dark," and he donated quite a hefty sum. And now he follows that up by saying this. Hey, guys, letting you know that season two of Dark is out on Netflix. I'm only donating a third as much this time, since as far as I can tell, only <laughs> Dave took me up on watching season one and only months after uh, after months of constant Twitter abuse. Dark season two is currently sitting at 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, in case you don't want to take my word for it. Uh, thanks for many years of entertainment. Keep up the great work. That comes in from Mike Apparicio. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean... I, I agree. I, I'm taking this donation all for myself. Is what I'm saying. Is is what okay. the impression I'm getting because I'm the only person who lived up to that side of the bargain of uh, watching Dark Season One. Devendra, how many episodes of Dark Season One are you into? I saw I saw two episodes. It, it was good. It just couldn't keep going. It's like, just compared it's, to it's everything a show else. you really need to work at. It, it, yeah. it takes a lot of work. You know. Yeah. So based on I saw some stuff from the trailer of season two, which looked really cool and is kind of motivating me to kind of catch up to see what all that is about. So I'm probably gonna do that soon. Uh, I would highly recommend Dark Season One. I have not seen Dark Season Two yet, but it is definitely on my to-do list. So thanks to Jamie from Decatur and Mike Apparicio from Oak Park, Illinois. Thanks also to new subscriber Alejandro Del Castillo for donating at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to contribute to the podcast, help us defray the cost of putting on the show, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash filmcast. Uh, or go to slashfilm.com, use the slash filmcast tab and the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, of course, we never want you to donate if it in any way causes you any hardship. Uh, and if that's your situation, hey, there's many ways to support us. Just leave a review for us on iTunes. It's completely free and it really does help us out. Uh, so thanks so much to all the people who donated. Let's get to our review of Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. 
You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skål! That was from the trailer for Midsummer, the newest film by Ari Aster. Uh, and I'm just going to read the plot summary for the film from IMDb. A couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. This is a slash filmcast, and joining us for our review of Midsummer today, she is a freelance film critic and screenwriter. Her work has appeared in Harper's Bazaar, The Mary Sue, The Playlist, and The Hollywood Reporter. Valerie Complex, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. Valerie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. It's the, you know, been a fan of Slash Film for a while, so this is a true honor. Well, nice. it's, great. it's great to have you on. Really appreciate you joining us. Um, and before we begin with our review of Midsummer, maybe it's a good place to start uh, by talking about what our thoughts were on uh, Ari Aster's last movie, Hereditary. Were you a fan of uh, Hereditary, uh, the 2018 film starring Tony Collette? Uh, I just want to say I love you, Ari. Uh, but uh, I was not a huge fan of Hereditary. One of the things that Mid- Midsummer gets right is exactly what Hereditary is wrong, um, at least to me. I think it's really well done, really well shot. It's it's a technically advanced horror film, but the story is like, meh. <laughs> I remember seeing in the theater having some harsh thoughts about the film, so I, yeah. This, I, I like Midsummer a lot more. I think my challenge with Hereditary, and uh, we'll, we'll try not to do too many spoilers for Hereditary here, but that it, it to me, Hereditary started as a really interesting psychological thriller and then veered into this kind of supernatural thriller that I just found to be much less interesting, uh, or at least less interestingly executed than the psychological aspects of that movie were. Um, so that's exactly my opinion as well. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was like. It it was like two different films, and mm-hmm. yeah. the necromancy aspect is is cool, but it, it's not something that was explored. It was seemed like it was just tacked on at the last minute. So. Mm. Yeah, uh, whereas I feel like uh, whatever Midsummer is, it fully embraces whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, it, there's no... <laughs> whatever it is, It yeah. does not feel like two movies, you know, mashed together uh, as Hereditary did. Like, this feels like full bore. Um, Devinder, remind us of your thoughts on Hereditary before we dive into Midsummer. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think I liked it much more than uh, you both did. Uh, I think... You know, I could totally see having issues with how that movie just feels like two separate things. To me, it was interesting how like that's bold as hell. Just shoving shoving a straight up like, uh, you know, witchcraft and uh, magic stuff happening uh, towards the end. And I saw the film like reflected. I saw the psychological drama kind of reflected through that later on. 
it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it didn't like perfectly fit, but I think the, uh, you know, the, the chutzpah of it is, is pretty astounding. And I think it worked really well for me. Uh, whereas this movie didn't, didn't quite hit that for me. Hmm. Interesting. All right. One of the things I find about Ari Aster's films, both of them, is that there's like an underlying queer element there. Mm-hmm. Um, queerness, for folks that are listening, doesn't just mean like anything having to do with LGBTQ. Sometimes queerness can denote like finding a sense of community uh, in an unexpected place. Mm-hmm. And uh, many um, LGBTQ folks uh, go through that sort of that sort of looking for uh, and seeking out community and both films do that. And I don't know if Ari Aster is aware that he's doing it or what I find that mm-hmm. element to be the most interesting about it, both his films. I think, yeah, both of them it's, it's that sort of seeking community, but also like seeking the permission to be loved in a way when the people who are supposed to love you kind of, kind of don't. And like, that's, that's it repeated again here. Well, there's a lot to dive into in Midsummer, uh, particularly in spoilers. But before we get to spoilers, uh, Valerie, you want to just share with us your overall thoughts on Midsummer? Like, what what did you think of this movie? Like, what was your reaction walking out of the theater? I think my reaction walking out of the theater is I had a lot more. I just had a lot more thoughts because I was unpacking the film. I think coming out of it, I thought that it was really well done and it was well shot a film that takes place during the day i think i would normally find annoying because it's so bright oh my eyes i'm going blind whatever you know i have a whole bunch of like complaints but this one was like really uh and the cinematographer they really work well together the acting by florence Pugh is 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 on 10 um she's like one of the best criers in hollywood i'm just gonna tell you right now Mm mm-hmm She can cry her ass off. And I mean, it's like this guttural thing where you really feel uh, the emotions. um, I think they pretty much capture that for the poster, too. Right. Like that is the poster. It's just her like smile crying in a weird way. Almost like, you know, the Greek tragedy face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I've talked about this at length. But the thing that I thought upon coming out of seeing Midsummer is that it's a lot like Euripides the Bacchae. That's what the first thing I thought about, which is weird, <laughs> but it had a lot of similarities and and I appreciated that a lot. And I just thought it was kind of creepy with all the gaslighting and stuff. That's <laughs> what scared me the most. Like these these moments where her boyfriend would pretty much gaslight the hell out of her were creepy. They were creepier than anything that happened toward the mm-hmm. end. And also the entire community kind of does too. And uh, I, I don't know. I just also felt particularly uncomfortable for this like supposedly happy community of, uh, you know, of, of white people trying to really, I don't know, hide the truth about everything that's going on. We know what it is. Like we've all seen the wicker man, uh, both of them probably. Um, it's not like it's a surprise, but I found it extra creepy how the movie handled it. Well, yeah, the whole community is like, yeah, they might yeah, call themselves yeah. the gaslighters because that's what they do. Um, and that in and of itself is just scary. And it makes you wonder, like, is this is she, Danny, the main character, like just vulnerable to the point where she just will accept anything? Or do these people really em- want to embrace her? Mm-hmm. That was a question that I had coming out of it. 
You mentioned the Bacchae. Um, so this is the uh, the Greek tragedy, right, by Euripides. Is there any uh, yes. is there any reason that particular story resonated with you? And like, how do you feel like it informs this movie? Well, the 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 I guess the ancient form of gaslighting. Um, a lot of it is the same. You have this this central person uh, in the in the Bacchae. It's is Dionysus who goes back to Thebes and is like trying to convince this community that he is who he says he is because his his mother is sort of outcast amongst the community for, you know, saying she's given birth to uh, this this demigod and he returns to the to the town and is like, I am, you know, who I say I am. And what ends up happening is that the he drives the women crazy in the in the town and in the end everybody who didn't believe him at first gets their payback <laughs> and it sort of works um midsummer kind of works in the same way um you have this person who's at the center who has a community of disbelievers um who don't believe in who she is and by the time you get to the to the end then you know you know what happens happens yeah and i mean there's a lot more intricate details in there that make them sort of similar uh but that goes that's spoilery which i can talk about later yeah we'll, we'll get to that later um but uh good reference divinity hardware what are your thoughts on midsummer overall i don't think i can like make a I, I can't surpass a euripides <laughs> deep cut right yeah, like that's a good thanks, euripides Valerie. uh reference there I have not thought about that since college. Um, I will say, like, you know, this movie, first of all, we haven't talked about, like, this movie is hilarious. I think this movie is very, very funny, even though it is trying, you know, it is ostensibly a film about uh, a relationship breaking down, a relationship that probably shouldn't, you know, should have stopped existing years ago. Um, it's it's a really intriguing look at grief, although I think Hereditary kind of handled that better. Uh, my main thing, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, th- I think there's, there are a lot of great ideas in this movie. I think the imagery is fantastic. Like just sitting there, I saw this late night uh, at BAM in Brooklyn and I love seeing trippy movies like this late night. Cause like I get into this, like almost like half, uh, half sleepy state where everything is just kind of, uh, I don't know. It's like a new dream state of cinema kind of worked really well for this movie. I don't think this movie needed to be two and a half hours long. I think they could have, um, maybe focused a bit on what the movie's trying to say because it feels like it's saying a lot of things. And by the end, you know, uh, things go wild as we kind of expect. But I don't think the uh, the thematic resonance of that uh, makes as much sense. To me, it's even more, um, it's like less impactful than even Hereditary was, whereas the ending of that movie felt like, like uh, oh, oh, it's just like this weird supernatural thing and it's all very inevitable. Here, they kind of drag everything out. You kind of know where everything is going, and I was never really surprised by any of it. So even though it was all very, you know, I can understand what it all means, but to me, not a lot of it felt super surprising, especially after Hereditary. Um, people were talking about this movie like, uh, oh man, that imagery from Hereditary, that one shot of that uh, that certain head, uh, it's even worse here. And I actually never found that. Like, I never found anything dis- as disturbing as that like one single shot from Hereditary. Mm. No, uh, it wasn't. Like, they were hyping it up. I mean, people yeah, were really yeah. overdoing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a good movie, but it's not all that. Like, 
the last 20 minutes. And that was a problem I had with hereditary is just the last 20 minutes was like, mm-hmm. it felt so unnecessary. And it's like, I could have sat there and watched hereditary and watched this whole family go absolutely nuts over grief without the necromancy. And I could have watched this relationship go 110% downhill without the cult. And (laughs) I think it would have been even more impactful to see a horror film about a breakup and how gaslighting is so horrific. But see, (laughs) none of that I found funny. Like, I didn't find any of that stuff. Yeah, well, certainly not that funny, but the way it is is sort of like, you know, yeah, there are there is a lot of comedic moments yeah, in it, yeah. and I think those are intentional. But I think when you when I think about the things that they said to each other, like mm-hmm. I was just sitting there stone faced, like I can't believe them. Like this, like this is the night. Oh yeah, I got everyone in the theater. Like that, there's some of those opening scenes. Everyone's like, "What? A, what a dick! What are you? What are you doing, girl?" Like it is the movie really gets you into that uh, state of mind very quickly. And I don't think it ever really leaves that when it comes to like the relationship between her and her boyfriend, I kind of feel like there isn't like, there wasn't as much complexity there as I would have liked either. Like what, what did she actually see in the sky? Like there, we don't even really get to explore that for a movie that's two and a half hours long. It feels like the broken relationship part of it isn't explored as much, but I will say, I like, I like the fact that Ari Aster is doing this weird thing of juxtaposing these two very, almost like extreme genres against each other, uh, trying to like mix oil and water and seeing how it like works together. I think sometimes it works really well here. Maybe not as quite, uh, but I still respect, uh, you know, I respect what he's doing. I wonder, do you think if, if you guys think about um, his last two movies, what do you think about the male roles? Um, Cause mm-hmm. somebody pointed out on Twitter that he doesn't develop his male characters as well mm-hmm. as the women. And if that's like a, personal thing yeah by not just connecting to men or connecting more to women or you know because there's, there's this film theme of female grief and some look at it as female hysteria mm-hmm. uh from the last two movies and I, i've seen a couple of people express worry about that um mm. i'm just wondering what you think so uh, i here here are my overall thoughts on the movie is that like I, I i'll answer your question valerie but give me like let me just get to it in a second by first starting about like what I what I like about the movie, which is that I think uh, it's many things you both have already pointed out. One is that technic- technically, I think the movie is extremely accomplished. I think that um, uh, Ari Aster, like fr- from a uh, production design and art direction standpoint, mm-hmm. um, this uh, movie nails this this whole feeling of being in this uh, foreign place that you're unfamiliar with. And like the world felt completely uh, well realized. It, it, it felt very authentic. I, I, at, at no point did I doubt that this thing could actually exist in the real world, right? Um, and I also love the camera work, which is extremely intricate and very like floaty. Like he, he will choreograph these extremely complex sequences where the camera like slowly goes from like it's like an overhead shot that dreamily floats from one part of the scene to another uh, and like lots of things need to occur in that sequence to like convey the feeling that he's going for which is just generally like unsettled like you're you you don't Mm -hmm. know what is wrong but there's something not quite right with the scene Um, I also think you're right that Florence Pugh is amazing in this movie I have not seen her in Fighting With My Family 
But I've heard she's great in that film as well. Valerie, do you see? I think uh, the little drummer girl. She's also very good in. Go go ahead, Valerie. Valerie, do you see Um, uh, Fighting with My Family by any chance? I did, and it's a it's an amazing movie. It's still one of my favorites of this year, and I think a lot of people forgot about it. But I saw like um, her first film, The Falling, and I saw uh, Lady Macbeth. Like she's just good mm-hmm. across the board like yeah. she's always on 10 and i don't expect anything less from her like you know when jennifer lawrence like took a break all of these talented actresses really started to come out the woodwork and i'm just so happy for that uh no shade to jennifer lawrence right now but you know i'm just glad that you know she was one of the talents that came out of that came out of that. And what I wanted to talk about as far as what I liked is the set design in this film is so detailed and so well-researched. Like I was, I was blown away by the way, just, I I know it's like a lot of open space and sun Mm -hmm. and everything, but like, if you like look on the walls when they get to their sleeping quarters, like the entire story is on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Like the plot, on the wall it was it was very beautiful i think after a point i was like um when is this too much right like there there's a great camera shot where the camera's just like uh following some characters and like just sweeping by you know like a very long poster that uh, lays out this very uh you know very gross sequence of events i'd say um and then it happens later on in the movie of course and i don't i feel like there was no subtlety to that in a way like what it depicted is so like not it doesn't feel like it would be something you would find in like a I, I don't know like a weird Swedish cult or something. Um, it felt like almost like something from a graphic novel. It felt a little too modern when we saw it on screen. But I, I like the opening mural as well. And the opening yeah, mural yeah. depicts kind of the the events of the film as well. But I, I agree with you, Valerie, that the the world is very uh, beautifully rendered, and uh, there's a lot of attention to detail here. Uh, I think you you've captured the. Uh, aspect of this movie that's uh, one of the aspects is interesting, which is that the whole thing takes place in daylight. It's one of these movies that, yeah. um, like Insomnia, right? The uh, the murder thriller Insomnia that like uh, where daylight is is actually an oppressive force, mm-hmm. right? And that like somehow it's more terrifying. The movie makes it more terrifying <laughs> that you can see everything. Rather yes. than like hiding everything in darkness, uh, which is what I will most say, I did do. I did not believe that nobody had sunglasses, or at least not the <laughs> the people coming in. Uh, I don't know. That's just me. I would not have survived just just standing outside there. But I want to get back to Valerie's question about the male characters in his films, and particularly in this one. I think for me, the uh, failure of this movie is not. Uh, necess- I don't conceive of it as the how well drawn the male characters are. I think of it more as uh, how poorly established the central relationship of the film is, and I think that that's what I have the big pro- a big problem with. It's not a it's not mm-hmm. like oh the male characters are all like you know paper thin sketches and you know Florence Pugh's character is really well done. It's that I think that in order for this movie to serve as an effective metaphor for a breakup which is what a lot of people think of it as which is what Ari Aster said like he went through a painful breakup and that's why he made the film uh, or he, he was making the film in the in um, uh, in the progress or in the process of uh, uh, shortly after going through a painful breakup you know like for that metaphor to really work for me I felt like we needed to know more about their relationship 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not feel that the movie accomplished that. So, so that's yeah. like my big issue with the movie. It's not about the male characters. It's about the central relationship. Valerie, what did you think of, of that relationship? Did you find it to be like well fleshed out? No, um, it wasn't. Um, but I think I let my emotions for the character take over mm-hmm. because she, this guy was so this guy and some of her friends and some of his friends were like so over the top. It was like unbelievable. Um, you know, we don't really have any, the only bit of nuance that we really get about the relationship is when, Oh, maybe not. That's a spoiler. Maybe. Never mind. Yeah. That conversation when she's on the phone anyway, she's on the phone and she's talking to her friend. Mm -hmm. And that was like the little bit of nuance that I got that, sort of put me in the headspace where this relationship might be. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, but again, that was never, that was never expanded upon. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I, we, come, we come into the relationship with like, we, where we expect his character to do better because she's gone through something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't see what it's like before. And so, you know, when the conversations comes up about him, him being abused like we don't know like that is an aspect i would have liked to have seen like is that true mm-hmm. like i had a lot of questions about right it, same you know? same yeah, yeah so yeah. i i have a lot of this complaint too i will say i give the movie a lot of credit for how quickly it establishes you know what what the deal is right like i do i would have liked to see more about the relationship but i think instantly you kind of get the sense of like oh she is she is in crisis she is dealing with this crazy you know family tragedy he is somebody who wants to be out of there because he's probably been dealing with her doing this for a while his friends don't believe in their relationship anymore like that's all sketched out so quickly that i found kind of fascinating i just feel like yeah it could have gone deeper especially for something so long all right well uh i think we have much more to discuss in the spoiler section but it sounds like overall uh, this is this panel today is like a little mixed on the film, right? That there's a lot of things we admire about it, but a lot of things that also frustrated about uh, us about the film. Uh, is that is that accurate, Valerie, or am I am I mischaracterizing? I think I I think I liked it a little more um, because I don't know. I'm just a huge Florence Pugh fan. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. really carries it. She carries it like up 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 and away. And it's like, if it wasn't for her and, you know, Ari Aster's sort of cinematic, you know, cinematic uh, experience holding it together, you know, but it's so good that I like am willing to forego a lot of that. But also like in an article, in an interview that I read recently, uh, if I'm correct, Ari Aster had talked about how he focused more on the aesthetic than the plot here. Mm-hmm. And you can tell. We can tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, I like that. I like Ari Aster, and I, if he's listening, like I feel kind of bad, but like, <laughs> um, because he, he's like a really nice guy, and I think he's smart, and I think, you know, he 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 really has a a, a, um, a, a uh, an interesting imagination when it comes to telling these type of stories, and I like the fact that he can take like emotions and create horror movies out of them mm-hmm. like breakup and grief and you know i i like that um so i think i liked it a little more but i agree with everything that has been said like i have no argument against that 
All right, well, let's get the spoilers for Midsummer starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. You know, earlier in this review, we talked about how, like, this movie to me felt... uh, like it committed fully to its supernatural premise yeah. right from the top. You know, like I, I never It wasn't felt, hiding it. It wasn't all. hiding yeah. it, you know, very much yeah. in, in, um, in keeping with the spirit of uh, being in daylight most of the time. One of the things that frustrated me about the movie, though, uh, is that even though it fully commits to that, that premise, uh, it really starts as one kind of movie and does end as another kind of movie stylistically not thematically sure. right but stylistically it, i felt like oh i kind of get wh- where this is going it, I f- this is like a kind of classic folk horror movie the people are eliminated one by one and about an hour and 45 minutes into this movie you realize that uh the writer director is not at all interested in that kind of movie like he doesn't th- th- there is some thrill in terms of figuring out like the plot mechanics like oh my god when are they going to discover that so-and-so has died you know what's going to happen with so-and-so like there's some of that which is what, what you'd normally expect in a movie of this kind but that takes complete backseat to all the stuff that goes on with Florence Pugh's character later on in the movie and and he's just like not interested in in making mm-hmm. a conventional film and I think a lot of people will love this movie for that right it, it is so unlike other folk horror movies in terms of its feel and in terms of its pacing. Um, but for me, I found it to be a little bit frustrating. Um, so I don't know uh, what y'all think of, of the uh, ending. You know what? A good, a good place to start might be this email that we received at slashfilmcast.gmail.com from Alexi from Boise, Idaho. Uh, and I want to hear what you, what you all think of this. Um, Alexi writes into slashfilmcast.gmail.com uh, she wrote this in uh, when Midsummer was released. She said, Happy Midsummer release day. In honor of the sheer miracle that this movie even got made, I want to share some thoughts on how Ari Aster depicts grief in his movies. For some context, my dad died when I was 19. We lived 1,300 miles away from each other, and he died very suddenly. I'd just seen him two weeks prior, and nothing had been noticeably wrong. Ari Aster is obviously interested in grief, its depiction on screen, and the effects it has on his characters. In Hereditary, after Charlie dies, we see Annie rocking back and forth on the floor, sobbing and screaming while her husband holds her silently. In Midsummer, we see Danny reacting to the death of her entire family in a similar way, letting out guttural sobs on her tiny sofa while Christian holds her silently. Sometimes that's all a partner can do in these situations, and those scenes affected me strongly because they are mirror images of the night I found out my dad had died. But Midsummer takes us a step further. Do you feel held by him is what Pell asks Danny of her relationship with Christian. Judging by her reaction and what we've seen of their interactions up until that point, her answer is no. In Midsummer's third act, when Danny witnesses Christian's participation in Maja's sexual ritual, she realizes she has lost yet another person in her life. And though Christian is not yet dead, she reacts with grief. What's different this time is the community of women around her. This time, when she starts sobbing, others sob with her. When she screams, they scream. They mirror her breaths and stroke her hair and hold her right side up. It's strange to watch, but it struck me as the ideal support I would want in a time of extreme trauma. Danny's no longer alone. She's held. 
By nature, grief is isolating. It has a peculiar way of making you feel as if no one could possibly understand nor shoulder your burden. Grief sucks, but Ari used such a strange situation to create what seems like the ideal way I'd want my partner to grieve with me. Perhaps in reality, it wouldn't have the same effect, but seeing the depiction on screen struck me as deeply moving and accurate, and I wonder if others felt the same way, end quote. So Valerie, I think this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier about uh, community, right? And that like at the end of this movie... Danny kind of has found this community of women uh, who are able to empathize with her and kind of embrace her. Um, what did you think of the movie's depiction of grief? Like, did you find that that resonated with you? The message of grief, it's hard to say if that resonated with me. I definitely felt something and I felt for Danny, but I didn't internalize it because I felt it to be so over the top. Um, mm-hmm. that it, I didn't connect with it in that way. But that's but she mentions that element of queerness, right? How we find communities that uh, accept us and hold us up. And if you notice throughout the film, like Danny is the only one who never questions the tradition that of this group. Um, she's very accepting. And even when the two uh, elderly people sacrifice themselves or whatever, she's the only one that doesn't have a mm-hmm. a big reaction. She to just kind of goes blank. Yeah. She just yeah. kind of goes blank to it. And I don't know if that's a grief thing or if that's just <clears throat> an acceptance thing. Like, even after two people die, she was still willing to stay. And when she was talking to Pell about leaving, she wasn't even talking about leaving in the sense of what she saw. She was talking about leaving because I think she could feel her and Christian weren't going to work out. And if she stayed in that relationship, she would somehow end up like this woman who sacrificed herself, you know, at the end of her life, um, because, you know, as they talk about, like, you know, we we sacrifice ourselves before, you know, we can get any older, before things spoil or whatever. And I don't think, I think when that that resonated with Danny and she was like, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore before I go spoiled or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time, you know, she's doing all of these initiation processes after she wins May Queen. She already knows the language. She already knows what's going on. She's, she's, you know, things, it's easier for her to assimilate because that's a place where she belonged. And I think that that's kind of given away at the beginning when they first arrive. Um, she's the only one who didn't have any complaints, didn't have anything to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, sort of reminds me of um, the Bakke uh, again. Um, you know, the people who uh, end up sort of surviving this chaos, this madness, um, because Dionysus drives everybody insane, is the people who sort of embraced him right away. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's the interesting part in terms of, like, the film. But I, I can't really say that I super connected with the message of grief there. I connected more with it in Hereditary because for some reason it just seemed more realistic to me. Um, that's just where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, Devendra, any thoughts on, uh, like, I, I guess a, a general question is what 
themes of the movie most resonated with you, Devendra? You know, I, I feel like Valerie's done a good job of articulating this idea of like community. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you're coming away from the movie, what are what are you? What is your reaction to uh, to the film? Like, what do you feel like it's trying to say to you? Yeah, I think you know the big takeaway too. You have the exploration of grief, but you also have the exploration of a relationship that's sort of dying, and a relationship that she probably knows she shouldn't be in, but she can't like she can't leave it either. Uh, it's this weird sort of awkwardness, you know, where you know she. That whole conversation where after the party at the beginning of the movie and, and they have this thing where she's mad at him kind of for not not telling her about this trip and it's a total dick move on his part. And that whole scene is fascinating because it goes from her having a legitimate like, you know, uh, yeah, issue with how he's treating her. And he turns it around by being a whiny little dude. He somehow turns it around on her so that she's the bad person. And then she ends up apologizing to him. I think those explorations like of how dysfunctional this relationship is and how I don't think either of them really wants to be in it, but it's probably the last thing Danny has to really hold on to. So she's, you know, grasping onto it for dear life. I find all that really fascinating. And that's, that's a big run through the entire film. Um, and certainly you could read a lot like grief is a great allegory throughout all of this too. It just feels like he's trying to mishmash a couple themes into one thing. Whereas I think if this was, if, if we didn't have the really like crazy over the top, um, a, a terrible thing that happens to her family. Like it's not just that her family dies. It's that her, you know, her sister who's been like vaguely suicidal for a while leaves a final note, leaves her distraught, uh, kills herself and takes her parents to in this like elaborate asphyxiation scheme. It is it, it's horrifying. It's completely horrifying. And the movie kind of sets it up that way. Um, I didn't I feel like, you know, Ari Aster just he swings big. It's sort of like, you know, the the the, the freaking decapitated head from Hereditary. That's a big swing. It's kind of things you don't really see, uh, you know, projected 50 feet in front of you in a crowd of strangers, you know, like that's that's kind of what he's forcing us to confront. So I don't know. I feel like maybe the fact that the movie starts like that kind of takes away from like what the the really interesting ways it could have explored relationships. Um, I will say it is fascinating. He made this movie at all because listening to some interviews with him, like, dude, Dude was working on this movie um, like he started production pretty much as Hereditary was getting released. He really didn't even get to like absorb the uh, the critical reception of Hereditary because he was deep into this movie. So it is fascinating to me like he's just he is on fire like he's just going to work hard, I guess, uh, as far as he can. Uh, and I can understand, understand that impulse to just like get your thoughts, get your feelings out there. A lot of this movie does feel like he's in his feelings, as the kids would say. One of the things that I found that kind of took me out of the movie at the very beginning was was when they talk about her sister um, and she's labeled as bipolar. Right. Yeah. And, oh, you know, she's just, you know, she's labeled as like the main or one of the main gaslighters of Danny because it's like, Oh, she plays this game all the time. Like, Oh, you know, she's just luring you into some of her whatever. And it's like, that's a really mean depiction of someone's mental illness because that, you know, that can happen, but the probability of it is, you know, that there's already a negative stigma around mental illness. So I just wish that that would have been handled better 
um, then, okay, so you have this pi- bipolar girl who does puts this elaborate scheme with hoses and whatever and takes it all the way upstairs. And, it, it you know, it was just sort of weird. Um, but I think one of the most fascinating things is, is all of the gaslighting. And for those who don't know what gaslighting is, 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 I don't know, even I'm having a hard time sort of describing it, but one of the, one of the lines that I, I think about to this day is when she wakes up and she's like, is it, uh, tomorrow and he's like well in the context of yesterday then yes and I was like this is so that's so horrible and I'm wondering one of the questions I have is do these people even know what they're doing to one another like I (laughs) I I understand I I feel like Danny may know may be aware of some things but does he know he's gaslighting her does she know that this is gaslighting um if she knew would she get out of this relationship like you know if danny's family hadn't died would he have left her behind like it's just you know there are a lot of questions that because the relationship is not as explored as it could be we don't we can't we don't have enough information to make Mm -hmm. a decision and these are questions I probably shouldn't have because it's not that deep because it's just the movie, but it's things that I, it's things that I was curious about. And I still found with, with all the gaslighting being so over the top, by the time you get to the end and see all of the, 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 the quote unquote disturbing imagery, yeah. I was just like, who's okay, on so fire what? now? Who's, who's lit up now? Right. Yeah. I was like, so what? I was like, <laughs> You know, I, I've never seen so many people squirming and moving and shaking in their chairs during <laughs> during the, during those scenes where Will Poulter would say something outrageous or, you know, he would say something outrageously ridiculous to her. And it's like the the things that that gaslighting can do on your mental state, the effect mm-hmm. that that has on your mental state. And it was like. What's the point of getting high when you're already disturbed? And <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just a lot going on. Yeah, I, th- I think the movie like it gives us at least a glimpse into the boyfriend's character too. Like when he's like, "Oh, I have a thesis idea. It's it's your idea. What are you ta- what are you talking about? Like, why are you being mad at me for you know stealing your idea? Like, it is this sort of like defensive like white guy thing, I guess too, where he assumes he could just like have the world shaped the way he wants it." And um, like, that's it. I think that whole that whole subplot kind of shows like who he is as a character. Right. He he may even realize what he's doing is wrong. And uh, what's his name? Uh, William Jackson Harper's character calls him out on that because he's he's being so anxious about it. Um, you know, during that whole scene, uh, this guy just basically has never been called out on his bullshit. And he's kind of coasted through life in this way of like making people conform to his needs and his desires. I found that kind of fascinating. Um, I wish maybe more had happened there and more with William Jackson Harper, because I love that man so much. Let's talk briefly about the very end of the film. And I think one of the things that has been interesting is to see the reaction that people have to the end. In particular, um, if you uh, l- read interviews that Jack Rayner has given. So Jack Rayner uh, plays... Christian, Danny's boyfriend in the film. And he, he, uh, when, when I read interviews with him, it seems as though he 
barely grasps what he has participated in. Like yeah. he is. You deeply, mean I'm the bad guy? He what? yeah. He is deeply upset by the ending of this film and how it is received. <laughs> right. Like he. Uh, I, I think there's a story of like how he. Uh, was at a screening and he said, you know, how many people think that Christian deserves what he gets? And like a lot of people in the audience like clap or raise their hand. And he is absolutely horrified uh, by that because because you are pointing out some of the things that he's done, like the thing with the thesis. And and there's also like he, you know, Jack Rayner literally like went through the movie and like identified like all the things that he did bad. Right. So, for instance, the the thing about stealing the thesis, that was one thing. And he's that part when uh, the uh, people were accused of stealing the uh, the book. Right. And he oh, says, yeah. oh, well, th- those people aren't our friends at all. You know, like they, we yeah. don't know the middle. He's like, so he fast diso- about that. He disowns wow. his friends, basically. Uh, and But aside from those few things. Um, there's and and obviously the things you point out, Valerie, like that could be construed in a number of ways. How, the to- the relative toxicity of the relationship. Um, he doesn't feel like the guy is he. The guy might not be an awesome dude, but he is not worthy necessarily of being uh, paralyzed by this chemical and then burned alive in a bear costume. Um. But uh, yeah, I mean, what did, what did you make of that ending? You know, the the very ending scene where uh, Danny looks on as all these people are consumed in the flames. Um, did you have any like? Were you feeling like yeah, like you know, she's getting hers, or uh, were you horrified at the whole situation, Valerie? What are your thoughts? Oh no, I wasn't horrified at all. I was like, good for her, and not <laughs> yeah, necessarily yeah. at you know, not necessarily at the expense of other people because I really wish it hadn't been that way, mm. but. If he had treated her better, he wouldn't have been sewn up in that bear, you know? <laughs> and I think that um, it's it was a release. I think this tribe, this group of people just took on whatever grief Danny was feeling mm-hmm. in that time and just sort of acted it out along with her. And then when she finally got her act together and she, like, smiled, it was like, okay, so this is, like, the release that we've all been looking for because we've all been on this journey with her and you know we want better for this woman who seems to be a sweet smart lady who hasn't really done anything wrong um and we want better for her uh so they you know when all of her troubles and grief burn up uh she can start over yeah. That was pretty much, you know, because when I when you look at all the flowers and everything, all of that means rebirth, um, you know, life and, you know, the circle of life and all that. Um, so I just I saw it as a fresh start. Um, I've been looking and doing research on what the bear means in Swedish tradition, but I haven't come up with anything super substantial but i was wondering if the bear was just like an isolated thing or could it have been a goat or you know whatever um if or if the bear was something that's like specific and i and i look at when i look at films i always look for like i look at films like a research paper which is kind of weird for most people but i'm like i always look at little things i'm like does this have meaning ways that i can sort of figure out and the bear thing was like was interesting was Mm -hmm. something i wanted to figure out however i didn't like the I just had a problem with the way the people of color were disposed of. Oh, yeah. It was just, 
Well, first of all, believing that people of color would even travel to something like this was just not. <laughs> it yeah. was just weird. And I was thinking that I wished that this movie was like all white people because in this context, it would make perfect sense. For sure, for sure. Because, you know, I just... Be- because the people of color would have GTFO'd Almost immediately, right? Oh, yeah. Well, at least, I mean, <laughs> like, the, the smart ones pretty much did. The smart ones were trying to, and then they were like, yeah, oh, well. No, I don't think it would have even gotten to that point. I think most people would have gotten <laughs> yeah. in there and saw all of those white people and been like, well, yeah, I You want me to hike 12 hours to this, uh, like, a weird commune with no communication to the outside world? Like, yeah. It's not a, not a great white folks? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So that, that was a part of it that was like, and then, like, you know, just to see... Uh, William Harvest Lake, like upside down, like they just bare, like they, you know, it was just weird. Um, and so I just, that was the element of the film that I just didn't like, uh, at all. And um, when you see a film like Hereditary, where it takes place, you know, both films take place in modern day, but uh, Hereditary is a little bit more connected to uh, a reality that maybe lived every day. And so in that film is where I expected to see a little bit more people of color. Yeah. Uh, not in this one. Uh, <laughs> fair, really fair sort of fantasy and sort of disconnected from reality. I just I just thought that was weird. Um, a, a few of the things about the ending uh, I want to point out that I, I quite enjoyed. You know, you, you all were talking about how like there was no single image or uh, moment that really stuck out to you. Actually, there was one for me. There, you know, thinking back on the movie... There is one moment in this movie that truly horrified me and that I'm going to be thinking about for years. Like, I'm, I will not be able to get this image out of my head for years. Uh, any idea what it is? Any guesses what it is? <laughs> By any chance? Um, it doesn't involve the smashed head? No. No. It really? Was, it was Are not you talking sp- about the spread, the spread eagle? Yes. Blood um, eagle? It's blood ca- eagle. So there's this moment when uh, yeah, Christian yeah. goes into a shack and uh, this other guy has is uh, has been inflicted on what's called blood eagle, which is, according to Wikipedia, a ritualized method of execution where they basically take the person's lungs out the back of his body, and he's still breathing, so he's still uh-huh. like that alive. Was, that was the detail that was. Yeah, I thought that's was pretty good. That was, that was so like a Hannibal, awesome. you know, tableau or something. That yeah. was such an awesome detail because yeah, it could have been hanging out his body, like whatever, but it was still he was still breathing. breathing. And, and so I then it's like, okay, so is the guy is he feeling pain and he just can't move because he's been paralyzed? Like that, the concept of that scene is gonna stick with me forever. <laughs> like I'm never gonna get that out of my head. Um, so that was really uh, terrifying. Another thing that I actually quite appreciated about the end of the movie is um, I, I have never uh, taken mushrooms before in my life, but I have read online that the depiction of taking mushrooms in this movie is quite true to life. Like it is a very accurate depiction mm-hmm. of what it is like to take mushrooms. And there's many visual effect shots that are very subtle, uh, like ba- basically Danny's uh, flowers, right, that she's wearing at the end of the movie are all alive, right? I don't know if you, it's clear, but like they're all moving and breathing with her. Uh, and I thought that was like a really effective stylistic moment. Um, so we should, we should give props to the movie that it apparently does a good job of capturing the experience of taking mushrooms. <laughs> um, so I just want to shout that out. 
Props um, for that, I guess. Uh, I, I, this is certainly a movie I can't wait to rewatch because there is so much detail in the setting and the imagery and everything that I really want to drink in again. Uh, maybe I'll be fast forwarding it to, yeah. to really get to the good parts. Just fast forward to the Blood Eagle part. I, yeah. I really, really enjoyed the, um, I don't know how to describe it, but there was something about the, the, synchron- the, syn- the synchronized movements of yeah. the group. Yeah. That I really enjoyed, like when they sat at the table yeah. and then one person would eat and then they'd all pick up their utensils one after the other. Or, um, you know, I really enjoyed like the comedic moment, especially like after the two sacrificed themselves and these, you know, the the people from the UK were like screaming and the lady was standing beside them like, what's the problem? What's going on? Like, you know, after two people just died or whatever, it's just. The little, like, this group of people, whoever those actors are, were great. Like, they really, I don't know where he found this group of people, but they all worked in unison really well together. And this dance and everything, like, everything was just really well choreographed. And the way that that, those scenes were shot were were just, I don't know, they were gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And, like, Ari Aster is really an accomplished confident director and it, at least there's that element <laughs> to agreed. me agreed 100 i feel exactly the same way about the direction yeah um, uh, i wonder what a film what it would look like if someone else wrote something and he directed it i wonder mm-hmm. i think that would be interesting um any closing thoughts from you davindra I will say I just rewatched uh, the original Wicker Man uh, just to get into the mood for this review, the Robin Hardy film. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of parallels. I think both in the same way, uh, both films just kind of end with the with the like a very, a very elaborate sacrifice. And we don't move on beyond that. And I think that's kind of interesting. I kind of want more. I kind of want to know, like. Okay, um, I like that the final is the final shot of her smiling. Is that where we cut to black? Um, yeah, I think yeah. one of the final shots. Although it's it's yeah. a very uh, it doesn't feel like a completely a hundred percent triumphant. You know, yeah. it feels yeah. like there's a a mixed smile there. In my there's opinion. very much a what next uh, thing going on with this movie. It's like, a, so is she leader of this cult now? Like, what what's up? What's going on? Um, but yeah, both this and Wicker Man kind of end with the sacrifice in a way. And just, that's it. That's the movie. Deal with it. And I kind of appreciate that, at least. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I think we can end it there, uh, Valerie, unless you have any closing thoughts. Um, but I think... Uh, I, I, think... Say, I don't think I don't think Ari Aster has ever been about closure. Um, I think you just have to deal with the cards you're dealt. And I kind of dig it. I actually dig that. It's like you go ahead and you figure it out on your own. Um, You know, is the is the the devil's 10th henchman coming back to Earth? And now is she the May Queen or is she allowed to leave? Like, you know what I mean? It's 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 a really I I like ending on cliffhangers. I think that Mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. So right. I, overall, I enjoyed the movie. I, I did. I liked a lot of things about it. It just, you know, there's it's not perfect. So, and we should just acknowledge, like, it's very, it's great to see, like, horror movies this year have been a consistent source of mm-hmm. original, interesting storytelling. Yeah, right? between this and us, this, like, this year's us, a bounty. Uh, yeah. I haven't seen Crawl, but I've heard that's great. Alex Aja's oh, new movie. 
you know, uh, and in a in an era where you know the vast majority of all movies at the multiplex are Marvel films or Disney films, uh, it's been great to get some variety, even in the form of movies like Midsummer. So let's wrap it up there. Um, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. This episode was produced by Baby Zhang. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week on the podcast. But in the meantime, Valerie Complex, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Valerie Complex and Instagram at uh, Valerie underscore complex. And I just wrote actually uh, one of my most recent pieces was for Slash Film, where I talk about uh, queer tropes in uh, LGBTQ cinema that need to retire. And uh, my most recent article is for pride.com, where I talk about uh, five queer movies that are harmful uh, to the LGBTQ community or I guess the depiction of queerness in those films is harmful portrayals. I don't even remember the title of the article. That's terrible. <laughs> um, but that's where my most recent work is to date. Is it the five really bad LGBTQ movies to avoid at all costs? Is that the one? Yes. All right. Yes. Well, we will link to both of those in the show notes so people can find them. Okay. Thank um, you so much. Great to have you on. Devendra Hardwar, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech at Engadget.com. I'm also doing a tech podcast at NoMoreTech.net. And I just restarted that. I guess that's season two. And my brother came on for an episode. So go listen to that. Find all of my stuff at DaveChen.net slash letters, which is where you can sign up to receive emails from me. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Next week, we'll be discussing The Lion King. The Lion King. The new uh, Lion King movie. Uh, that uh, is not, it's not live action. It's not animated. It's something in between. So tune in for that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about.